Thank you, Keith. Well, good morning, everyone. It's wonderful to see you as we look at God's Word. And uh, can I also extend a welcome if you're new or visiting? My name's Cameron. Uh, Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your Word. And we pray this morning as we look at your great love for us, uh, that you would show us clearly how well you know us, how great your love and care for us is, Lord. We pray that you would change us to trust you more, to rest in you, uh, and to love you in return. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Every breath you take and every move you make, every bond you break, every step you take, I'll be watching you. As I'm sure many of you know, those are the opening lyrics uh, to the hit song, Every Breath You Take by The Police, uh, a song that went number one around the world, won uh, the Grammy for Best Song in 1984, and many consider it to be uh, one of the greatest love songs ever written. Although, just a quick glance at the lyrics uh, reveal it's, it's less uh, the words of a dream romance and more those of a nightmare. Wherever you go... I see you. Everything you do, I'm watching. I own you. You belong to me. There's no escape. In fact, Sting himself acknowledged that when he wrote this song, he he was in a bad place. Uh, He wrote it just after getting divorced, and he now calls it an evil song, a nasty song about jealousy and ownership and surveillance. And yet, despite that, people still love it. Over 20 years after it was released, Sting said it was still bringing him about $2,000 a day in royalties, and it's still being used in weddings to celebrate new love. And, and you, you wonder why. Have, have you ever read the lyrics? I mean, if someone ever showed me lyrics like this and said their partner wrote it for them, I'd tell them to run away and, and ironically call the police. Um, but... To put my amateur pop psychologist hat on for a second, I think that there's an element to this song that, that while twisted, uh, represents something we do want. Uh, We long to be loved, uh, we long to be known, to be understood, and to have someone there for us who will always be there for us, who will never let us down. Well, today as we continue looking at different psalms over January, Psalm 139 actually describes God very similar to this song by the police. It speaks of an intimacy and knowledge and involvement in our lives beyond anything we could imagine. But rather than being a source of fear or dread, for those of us in Christ, it's a source of wonder and comfort and joy. And so, uh, as we begin, you've been given an outline to show you where we're following. Uh, Structurally, uh, Psalm 139, it's really easy to divide. Uh, It's got four equal sections of four verses. The first three discuss God, and then the last one is about uh, uh, David's response to God. And a lot of sermons and commentaries uh, will structure it like this on the screen, all about these big omni-words. You might have heard these omni-words before. Uh, The uh, omniscience of God, that he's all-knowing. Uh, the omnipresence of God, that he's present wherever we go, uh, and that he's omnipotent, that is, he's all-powerful. And while that's not wrong, it's not really right either, 
Because this passage isn't some intellectual kind of theoretical discussion about theology, about what God's like. It's not concerned so much with uh, whether God knows what's happening on a particular speck of dust on the far side of Mars. He does. But no, it's a deeply personal psalm about how God relates to us as his people. And so we're going to look at it under uh, four headings. God's intimate knowledge of us. God's intimate presence with us, his intimate involvement with us, before looking at how we should respond with undivided loyalty uh, to him. So uh, let's jump in at verse 1, where we begin with God's intimate knowledge of us. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. So as I said, our opening paragraph, it's all about the extent of God's knowledge. It talks of him searching and perceiving, discerning, being familiar, knowing completely, all these different knowledge words, and particularly Uh, It's focused not on God's knowledge in general, but his knowledge of David. Uh, God knows all the mundane details of David's life. Uh, Verse 2, when he gets up in the morning or when he sits down to rest. Uh, Verse 3, when he leaves the house or or comes back. His day-to-day life, God is aware of. He he also knows the inner thoughts of David, verse 2. His feelings, his values, his motives. In fact, In verse 4, God knows David so well that he knows what David is going to say before David's even said it. Now, this is a level of knowledge that we don't even have about ourselves. You know, while a lot of the time I know what I'm going to say, I'm sure that if you're anything like me, there's been times when you've said something stupid or or in anger and thought, where did did that come from? I didn't mean to say that. I didn't think I was going to say it. I can't believe I said that. But, but not with God. He knows us so well that he knows what we're going to say before it even happens. Indeed, it's not merely knowledge about us. Uh, it's not just the facts. David starts by saying, you know me. Uh, it'd be like if I, uh, let the, if I drop the bombshell that, that I know Taylor Swift. And after I get mobbed by some of our teenage girls and... Um, a disproportionate number of our teenage boys, uh, and, and you come up and ask, when, when, did you, um, when did you meet her? How do you know her? And I say, oh, we've never, we've never met. Okay. How, how, do you, how do you know her then? Uh, well, I, I read a few articles about her, and um, Kim and Kyrie make me listen to her CD far too often in the car. I've, I've listened to a lot of those CDs. And I did this quiz once uh, uh, where you had to guess whether the lyrics on screen were, were from a Taylor Swift song or from the Book of Lamentations. And I did really well at that. I think I know her really well. You think, you're crazy. You, you know about her. You don't actually know her. Knowing facts about someone isn't the same as having a relationship. And, and that's the same here. It's not just that God knows about us. That's true. It says he knows us. He has searched me and he knows me. Personally, intimately, relationally. 
And it's here that uh, some of us might actually start getting concerned, getting worried, hearing an even scarier version of I'll be watching you. Uh, The late atheist Christopher Hitchens, uh, for instance, reflecting on this part of God's character said, I think it would be rather awful if God existed, uh, if there was a permanent, uh, total, round-the-clock, divine supervision of everything you did. You know, you'd you'd never have a a waking or sleeping moment when you weren't being watched and controlled and, and supervised. It'd be like living in North Korea, he said. And there's some truth in what he's saying here. God's knowledge of us does mean that on Judgment Day, when the secrets of our hearts will be laid bare, there really will be no way of us covering up. Every action, every word, every thought is known by God. He'll judge the world with complete knowledge, with absolute truth. And even as those whose sins are paid for in Christ, who need not fear Judgment Day, we can still find this concept a little bit scary, can't we? I mean, I personally wouldn't want to give you access to one hour's worth of my heart, let alone my entire lifetime. Yet David, he he doesn't feel this way about God. His response in verse 6 is praise. He calls such knowledge wonderful. It's a source of joy and delight to him. And it should be for us too, uh, for many reasons. Uh, For starters, it means that when we're going through hard times and long for someone to understand what we're going through, someone to understand our struggles, God knows them better than ourselves. It means that God's care for us is always completely informed. I don't know if you've ever, uh, in a moment of great fear, prayed, and then after you said amen, realised, oh, wait, I forgot to say this. Um, I I do that. Um, And then you pray again as if God doesn't know. Oh, by the way, God, um, don't forget about this um, because that could go wrong as well. And I I don't want that to happen. Like that's an outcome we've got to avoid as well. Don't forget this one. God's knowledge of us means that his care is always perfectly informed. He's always perfectly aware of our situation, what we're experiencing, what we're feeling, what we need, what's best for us. He's never going to make the wrong decision because he didn't know enough. In the uncertainties of life, when we don't know what might happen, God knows and won't be caught off guard. And he won't be caught off guard by our sin either. Uh, This is, after all, the reason why we wouldn't want someone to have access to our hearts, isn't it? To know our thoughts and our deeds and to watch us at all times. I wouldn't want you to realise how bad I truly am. Wow, I didn't realise he was like that. I thought he was more loving than that. I thought he was more gracious than that, more humble than that. I didn't realise how uh, impure his motives often were. Why do I listen to him or work with him or be friends with him or be married to him? Uh, Big mistake, time to cut and run. But that's not the case with God. He's never going to discover some secret about us that makes him change his mind. God's saying, I know all the sins of your life better than you do. I know all the sins that you've forgotten about, the sins that you weren't even aware you committed because your heart was so hardened at the time. And I know all the sins you're going to commit for the rest of your life, for today, tomorrow, in the years to come. And yet I still love you. I still chose you. 
I still gave my son for you. This isn't a cause for fear, but a source of wonder, of comfort, of absolute assurance. And if that wasn't enough, uh, David goes on to talk about how God is intimately present with us at all times. Let's continue from verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. So here, uh, David shifts from God's knowledge, his omniscience, to to his omnipresence, how he is everywhere. Uh, But just like in the opening section, uh, his concern isn't whether God is present in the, you know, 157th star to the left uh, when you look up in the night sky. He is. It's more about David, how wherever David goes, God is with him. Uh, He begins by asking rhetorically, where can I run to escape your presence? And the implied answer is, well, well, nowhere. Uh, Wherever he goes, God will be present with him. And he makes that clear in verses 8 and 9. If I go up to the heavens, that is as high as you can go, or down to the depths, literally it's, it's to Sheol, to the grave, either way, God is there. Uh, The same again in verse 9, if I rise on the wings of the dawn or settle on the far side of the sea. Uh, It's very poetic language there, but it's got a very simple meaning because where does the dawn rise? Well, it rises in the east. And where is the sea? Well, if you're in Sydney, it's also in the east, but David isn't in Sydney when he's writing this. He's in Jerusalem and the sea is in the west. Uh, So he's saying, you know, from east to west, from as high as you can to as low as you can, and anywhere in between, wherever I go, God is with me. And wherever you are, nothing can hide you from God's presence either. He says the darkness, night, nothing. There is light to God. And again, this is all meant to be seen as an extremely encouraging set of facts. Uh, Some uh, people interpret David's words here negatively, thinking that his question, you know, where can I flee, means that he actually wants to flee. Maybe he's doing a bit of a Jonah and wanting to run away from God. And and they see uh, this whole section as a bit of a threat, as if God's saying, look, you can't run from me. Don't try. You you can't escape judgment. Stop fighting the inevitable. Just, Just submit. And while that's true, again, that's not where David goes with this. Because verse 10 shows us, Uh, that he views this positively. Wherever he goes, he says, God is guiding me. And he uses intimate language again here, guiding by the hand. This is personal language, like a parent holding a child's hand. Indeed, your right hand will hold me fast. God is holding on to us wherever we go, whatever we face. As a parent, this is something I uh, can relate to quite easily because there are so many times uh, when uh, one of our daughters will just need to have us around. Uh, You know, she'll have a a nightmare and uh, be too afraid to be alone and so she'll come join us in bed. Uh, Sometimes that's annoying. In fact, uh, usually it's annoying because nightmares rarely happen 
at convenient times. That they, they happen at night. Um, but, you know, you also love your child and, and you want to be there for them and you want to provide that comfort and that presence uh, and, and hold them in your arms. But, you know, when they fall asleep, you do try to sneakily carry them back to their own bed. Because if you don't, the moment you fall back to sleep, you'll get kicked in the face. And you just can't do it. And sometimes, you know, we, we get away with it. Sometimes she sleeps the rest of the night, win. Sometimes, though, she'll wake up again, alone in her room, uh, terrified, and cry out to us from the darkness. David's saying, no, it's never like that with God. As Christians, we'll never find ourselves cut off from God, alone in the dark. He's never going to put us aside so that he can be away from us. Um, He's always with us, always holding us. Even in the darkest times, when you, when you walk into a room surrounded only by enemies, when you cry into your pillow, feeling all alone in the world, when you lay in the hospital bed, knowing that you don't have much time left, whatever you're facing, you're not alone. You're never by yourself. Indeed, for the Christian, uh, God's not only present with us the way he's present everywhere, but he dwells in us by his spirit, uniting us to Christ. Uh, to quote uh, one of my favourite songs we sing here at church, church, never alone is now our cry. In joy, in grief, in lonely sin, never alone, for Christ is ours. He lives with us, we live in him. Which brings us to the third section, where David speaks of God's intimate involvement with all of our life. Uh, Let's read on. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Here David talks about God's intimate involvement, his, his, really his personal control, his sovereignty over every aspect of David's life. Uh, he mentions uh, from verses 13 to 16 God's involvement in his creation, how, how God created him and, and knit him together, how he's fearfully and wonderfully made him and, and wove him together. And uh, while this is obviously not meant to be a, a, provide a scientific account of you know, fertilisation and gestation, things like that, it teaches a far more important, a far more fundamental truth that our life is from God, given by God. We're made by God. And not in some standing back, just watching way. The language of knitted and woven together in particular is meant to indicate how personally involved God is. It pictures God uh, making us like he's knitting a scarf, hands-on, personally involved, weaving each and every thread. And it goes beyond that. He doesn't just create us and then stand back and let us rip. Uh, Verse 16 says, All our days were ordained and written in God's book, all before one of them came to be. God has personally planned 
designed, preordained every aspect of our life from when we're born to when we die and every day in between, what happens each day. It's all written by a God who knows us perfectly and is intimately present with us as we live these days out. Now, it's here, again, uh, we might stop and uh, make all sorts of right deductions uh, on all manner of important issues. Um, The value of humanity, uh, the preciousness of human life, that according to God's word, life begins into the womb. Uh, We can make conclusions like the rest of the Bible does, that we're not meant to take uh, the life of another human being, uh, whether unborn or nighty, how we're not meant to mistreat anyone or abuse another human being. Uh, it's right to, imp- uh, to ponder these things. They are right conclusions about the, the value of humanity given uh, by God as his special creation, fearfully and wonderfully made. But again, this isn't David's primary purpose. Now, he wants to heighten our view not of ourselves, but of God. For what does David do in this section? Again, he praises God. Verse 14, I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Indeed, throughout this whole psalm, he's been talking about the wonder of what God is doing. Verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Uh, I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. He keeps talking about the wonder of God. He marvels at God, his knowledge, his level of involvement, his care, his dedication. And this brings him great comfort. In verse 17, he speaks about how precious this is to him. The fact that God knows and thinks and cares so much about him, David treasures that. And so should we. For for some, the the idea that God has planned out our lives, it, it freaks them out. Particularly because it means that suffering we face, well, that's part of God's plan and And we don't want to think about our God having some sort of involvement in our suffering. We'd like to think him uninvolved in our suffering. But actually, the alternatives are far worse. Because the alternatives are either that God was taken by surprise by our suffering. Whoops, I didn't know that was going to happen. Or God isn't even aware yet that we're suffering. He's just so distant that he can't see it. Or that he was unable to help or doesn't care enough to help. If any of those were true, I couldn't have any confidence in my future. I could have no certainty. But if God is in control of my suffering, well, I might not know what he's doing, but I know my suffering isn't random but designed. It's not meaningless but purposeful. Nothing I face is is random chance, bad luck. At every point in my life, God knows what I'm going through is with me as I go through it, and even planned that this is what I would face. And knowing this means we need not fear anything. Uh, That's the application that Jesus makes uh, in in Matthew's Gospel. He mentions how God is uh, so sovereign over all of life that he even controls the life of a sparrow, that he knows us so intimately that even the hairs on our head are numbered. And when combined with the fact that God cares for us deeply, he says, you never need be afraid. Don't be afraid. Henry Martin, a missionary uh, who died in India in the early 1800s, spoke uh, how uh, despite the danger he faced, uh, this truth meant that he wasn't scared because he was effectively immortal. 
until Christ's work was done uh, in him. Uh, he didn't mean that literally. He, he knew he was immortal. Uh, but if God had ordained his death, then that's when he would die and not a moment beforehand. There wasn't a point worrying about it. I remember seeing this certainty when I used to do nursing home chaplaincy. I remember speaking with one Christian woman, uh, asking if she was afraid of death, and she bluntly said, no, if God wants me to die tomorrow, I'll die tomorrow. And if he doesn't want me to die tomorrow, I won't die tomorrow. And nothing I can do will change it either way. Now, she wasn't saying our behaviour doesn't matter. She still took her pills. She still ate her meals. She still lived wisely in God's world. But she knew that ultimately her fate was in God's hand and so there was no point worrying. And we can rest in God's sovereignty, not just with the end of life, but with all life. I worked hard with my assignment. I did what was required. I've submitted it. Now I can go to sleep. I'll trust God. If I'm meant to do well, I'll do well. If I'm not meant to do well, I won't. Nothing will change that whatsoever. I'll do my best at work. I'll be responsible. But I can't do more than that. If I get fired, I get fired. If I get promoted, I get promoted. Either way, I'll leave it with God. I've tried my best to reconcile with that person. You know, I've forgiven them. I've prayed for them. I've said sorry. I've done the things that I'm called to do. But I can't control what happens. So I'll leave it with God. God is sovereign and I'm not. And so I'll rest easy at night knowing that he's in control of my life. He's the omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient one, not me. He knows all things about my life. He's always present with me. He's in control. I'll leave it with him. Which brings us to the final paragraph, the hardest one, David's response to God. Let's read from verse 19. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them at my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's anything, any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. It's a pretty massive shift in tone, isn't it? And we go from all this positive talk about God's intimate relationship with us to slaying the wicked and avoiding the evil and even hating them. It seems to come out of nowhere. And we can't just explain it away saying, well, that's David, he was a sinner. You know, that just reflects his sinfulness. No, this prayer was inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's the word of God written for us. So what do we do with it? Well, uh, we know from elsewhere in Scripture what it can't mean. Uh, Jesus himself makes it very clear that we're to love our enemies, uh, to pray for them, uh, to be a light to the world rather than be cut off from the world. He says that simply loving those who love you is not enough. That's Everyone in the world does that. It's only when we love both the wicked and the righteous that we're like our Father in heaven. So it can't mean we're meant to go out and mistreat those who don't love God, slay the heathens, separate from the world, any, anything like that. But that still doesn't tell us how to read this psalm, does it? It tells us how not to read it, but how should we read it? 
Well, I think there are two things to think about that can help us here. Uh, The first is we actually need to remember who this psalm is first and foremost about. Because as we've been reading through, I've been applying this to us as Christians, which is valid. But actually, it's first and foremost a psalm of David, the king of Israel. One of the dangers when we read Old Testament stories, uh, particularly about David, is we just tend to read ourselves into David's position. Uh, So when uh, David slays Goliath, Uh, If you were to relate to that story on a personal level, uh, who are we? Well, for many of us, we just assume that we're we're David in the story, you know, and if I'm just bold enough and trust God enough, I can defeat all my enemies as well, and I can can conquer and be victorious. I'm going to be a David. But that's not how the Old Testament works. David's God's chosen king, the one through whom God defeats the enemies of his people, David's not pointing to us, he's pointing to Jesus, uh, the appointed king who would defeat our ultimate enemies. At best, we're to relate to the people of Israel who are cowering on the side, uh, hoping that God would somehow deliver them. Uh, More accurately, for most of us, as non-Jews, we're the Philistines, the one David's going to defeat. And it's the same in our psalm. I'm not naturally the subject of this psalm. It's David writing, pointing to Jesus and fulfilled by Jesus. And so the role of judging the wicked is not mine, but Christ's. And one day he will judge the world. He will set all things right. Evil will be, won't be left unpunished. Where do I fit in this psalm? Well, actually, naturally, I'm in the category of the wicked. Uh, those who hate God and should be slain. Yet amazingly in Christ... We've been chosen. We've had our sins paid for. We've been forgiven. We've been brought near. Indeed, we get to have an intimate relationship with God even greater than David himself had. We get to call upon God as our Father. We share in the very sonship of Christ adopted into his family. This level of intimacy and access even David didn't have. So we don't read this as encouraging us to judge the world. But there is an underlying concern that David has in his desire to judge that we should have. Because we see why he, uh, David hates these wicked people so much. And it's not because he feels superior to them or because they've done something wrong to him. No, no, verses 20 and 21, it's, he's angry because of their relationship with God. They're God's enemies. They dishonour God. They hate and rebel against God. And this pains David because as David looks at how great God truly is, how loving, how kind, how gracious in providing, how he's with us, the first 18 verse, God is so amazing. How could anyone mistreat him? He deserves all our love. He deserves all our honour. He deserves all our respect. He sees the sin of the world, how horrid this rebellion really is, how deserving of judgment. He loves God so much that he wants God to be glorified by all. And we, should, we too should feel such love, such loyalty to God, that we want others to worship God as well, that it pains us when others don't know God, dishonour God, rebel against God. We want people to come to trust the Lord Jesus and be restored 
to right relationship with him. It's an expression of that same desire to see God glorified. But there's also a challenge to make sure our life glorifies God as well. Because note how David ends. David doesn't end looking outward, but he turns inward. His final words ask God to examine him. Look at the anxieties in my life. The way that despite all this, I still don't trust you the way I should, God. I still worry. I still don't have it all together. I know you're sovereign and good and still freak out at times. And, and examine me, Lord. Point out the sin in my life. Lead me in righteousness. Lead me in your way. David's concern isn't a hypocritical commitment to God's glory about those out there and not in here. It's total. God wants him to transform himself. But, you know, David can pray this prayer. David can be vulnerable and intimate before God like this. And we can too because he knows that we're safe with this God. Because we're speaking to our intimate, loving, caring, tender father who loves us and gave his son for us and enables us to be vulnerable and open before him. Not fearful of his judgment, but assured of his care. And so, let's commit ourselves to this God in prayer. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you for the wonderful God you are, that you know us so well, that you are always with us, guiding us, holding us in your hands, that you have ordained every moment of our lives. Father, we pray that rather than a source of dread, this will be a source of great joy and comfort and assurance that when things are bad, when things are good, and everywhere in between, help us to trust you, to rest in you, uh, to know your good, tender love. We pray that we would so love you in return that we long for others to know you, to worship you, to give you the honour you deserve. Give us a heart for the lost, not just for their sake, but for your sake as well. And we pray that you would help us uh, to be open and vulnerable before you as well, like David. Please show us uh, the ways that we don't trust you and the ways that we don't love and honour you. And we pray that you would transform us to trust and love and honour you. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. The great comfort that uh, Cameron has reminded us of is that we are never alone when God uh, is supreme and ever-present, but also has revealed himself through Christ, gone to the cross to us and, and uh, invited us to be in his company forever. Let's stand and sing this song together, Never Alone.